And good morning. It's Friday morning, and I am your host, Alicia Bales. This is Byline Mendocino, our bi-weekly media roundtable looking at issues of local journalism, local news, and local newsmakers. Today on Byline Mendocino, we have the return of the local media roundtable with our two local reporter guests, Colin Adagi of the Santa Rosa Press Democrat and Kate Fishman of Mendocino Voice. That's going to be in the first half of the show. We'll talk with them about what they're covering, the local stories that they're covering right now, and give you a heads up of, of what what you can pay attention to locally and how you can find out more and follow their stories. In the second half of the show, we'll talk with David Loy, who is the legal director for the First Amendment Coalition, and Kate Maxwell, who's the publisher of the Mendo Voice. We're going to talk about a local ordinance passed by the Board of Supervisors that would raise, that does raise fees for Public Records Act requests, the way that we get access to uh, public records in our government, and what it means for transparency and government accountability, how David and Kate are working to oppose it. So that's going to be uh, starting at 9.30. But first, let's bring up our local media roundtable. Good morning, Colin and Kate. Thanks for joining me. Good morning. Hi, good morning. And and Kate, it is your premiere here on KZYX, so welcome, welcome. Thank uh, you. Glad to be here. Kate is a um she covers the environment and natural resources for the Mendocino Voice, and she is a Report for America fellow. So you've been uh working locally for how long now at the Mendo Voice? Uh just a few months really. I got here at the end of May and started in June. Um but it's been been great so far. A lot to take in, but a lot of really interesting stories. Right, wonderful. And Colin, you're the breaking news reporter for the Santa Rosa Press Democrat. You frequently cover stories in Mendocino County, especially this month. It's been a wild and woolly news month for Mendocino County. It seems like we've been in the Press Democrat every day. Do you want to start we'll start with you and um sort of some of the some of the highlights of what you from Santa Rosa are coming up here to cover? Um, yeah, yeah. Um, and I want to say I was telling my co-workers the other day, I feel like I've been to Ukiah a lot more than any other uh, Sonoma County city. Um, and, and unfortunately, all the stories that bring me up there, they're, you know, they involve crime, court cases, not exactly routine stories, not exactly feature stories. Um, so the, the, the big ones I've been covering are the, uh, the story of former Ukiah Police Sergeant Kevin Murray, um, the trial of uh, Devin Johnson, who's accused of starting last year's Hopkins fire, which happened almost exactly one year ago. Um, and um, earlier last month, the um, the murder of a um, toddler found along Brush Street in Ukiah. So, unfortunately, all um, you know, crime or court stories. Right, and one of those stories in particular is a government accountability and police accountability story. The story of Kevin Murray. Do you want to just talk about the the latest news in that case? So, so that story uh, you know predates my time in the North Bay, uh, it goes back um, from what I've uh, come across um, to 2014 at least. Um, but he was a sergeant and he was charged in a rape and assault case uh, involving two women. And he was set to go to trial last 
or in July, we're in September now. Um, and he entered a plea deal for two lesser charges. Um, and so he was convicted and this week he was sentenced. Um, you know, he got two years of probation. Um, although the judge said if he has any violation, he could be sent to prison for two years. So I'm curious, there's been a lot of outcry locally about this case, um, the just the severity of the charges, the horrific nature of the abuses that were reported about Sergeant Murray, and the what seems to be extremely lenient outcome of his p- penalty, two years of probation. What, what, as you're observing this case, do you have any, you want to weigh in on this at all? What's your, what's your, what are your thoughts covering this case? Well, you know, like, like I said, you know, I'm, I'm still trying to do my homework and in talking to some of the local, like, like, you know, you, you mentioned the outrage. Um, and, um, as you may have seen, there were protests out, outside the courthouse. Um, you know, area residents, who were upset, as you mentioned, by the uh, plea deal. Um, some of them were longtime Ukiah area, area residents. And I, I've talked to some of them, and they've made some allegations that I've not been able to verify, um, partially because, as mentioned, I'm still kind of new to the area, and I haven't you know, dove in, into the story as much as I would have liked. Um, but from what it sounds like, there are allegations that he's done a lot more than what we found in court documents, what's been mentioned in, um, you know, in the courtroom. Um, again, because I can't substantiate any of that, I'm, I'm not necessarily going to, you know, go into specifics, but I, I'm just finding that there's more to be discussed than what's been talked about in court. And so, um, you know, that's where a lot of the anger comes from. On top of that, the, the fact that he was a sergeant, he was with the police department, and there's a feeling of betrayal out there. And so that's another area where people are angry. E- even during sentencing, the prosecution, they said the fact this involved a member of law enforcement makes it more egregious than it would be for anyone else. Right. Okay. And the other story that you are covering is the story of, well, one of the other stories is about the arson defendant uh, in the Hopkins fire, as you said, was almost exactly a year ago, September 12th, 2021. The Hopkins fire uh, exploded in Calpella. It raced up the hill, uh, burning about 30 homes and then went down almost to the lake itself, almost to the waterline at the lake at Lake Mendocino, a uh, devastating event. And it turns out um, that there is a defendant who's being charged for arson in that case, who's now uh, getting ready to go to trial after this will be his second appearance. Uh, the first time he was found not mentally competent to stand trial. Is that right? Right, right. So, so um, back in November, he had a preliminary hearing where he was ordered to stand trial. Um, er, earlier that day, um, the there there were questions about his mental competency, and you know, after he was ordered to stand trial, he was ruled mentally incompetent. And over a matter of months, uh, he received treatment and. 
he eventually was deemed competent. And so the court ruled that um, it was only appropriate for him to have another preliminary hearing uh, now that he would be in uh, of a better mindset to assist in his defense. Um, and I attended both prelimin preliminary hearings, and, and they were pretty uh, routine, uh, you know, pretty brief. Um, the, the second one revisited some of the same evidence as the previous hearing. Um, they looked at surveillance footage of the uh, defendant allegedly, you know, you know, entering and running from the area where the fire started. Um, there was testimony from a Mendocino County Sheriff's detective who interviewed him after he was arrested. So that, that was a very brief hearing earlier this week, and he is now set to be rearranged. But there's, a, there's also a motion for a change in venue. Um, the defense is arguing that he cannot get a fair trial in Mendocino County, given the severity and the coverage of the fire. Um, so that might be the next topic to be discussed, where the uh, trial can take place. Right. Okay. And um, great. So do you think that there's much of a chance for the change in venue? It just kind of, it, it kind of seems like... This is the play. The the crime was horrendous. You know, obviously he's innocent until proven guilty. But the the people who lost their homes, uh, thirty homes, were lost in that fire, and they're still here. They're, you know, the, we know them. They're our neighbors and our friends and people uh, our children go to school with, and um, their lives were devastated. So I can see the argument for moving the venue, but also what about the accountability to the community that was affected by this and is there really any community in california who isn't uh, impacted by wildfires at this point who feels this case viscerally i mean is there a place where he could get a more fair trial and, and i mean i mean maybe the middle of nowhere i mean because that, that, that was part of the uh, argument in the defense's motion um you know as you like you mentioned northern california uh, the North Bay in particular, they are very sensitive to wildfires. And that's mentioned in the argument, in the motion for a change in venue. Um, it talked about how pretty much everyone in Mendocino County understands the severity of a wildfire, and therefore that already clouds their judgment. Um, so, you know, maybe... <laughs> I mean, th th this is just me, you know, speaking on a whim. I don't know, maybe Southern California. I mean, they've got wildfires there. Yeah, they've got, they've got yeah. wildfires too. And, and, and I've covered several, but for the ones I've covered back when I lived in Southern California, um, acreage-wise, yeah, you know, we, we had a few big ones, but it, it's the the wooded area. The, the wooded area is here. The developed area is here, mm -hmm. whereas I feel like up here in Northern California, they're kind of mixed. And that may, that makes things kind of worse. Uh -huh. It would, they call that the, the wooey, yeah. the wildland yeah. urban interface zone. Yeah, the inter <laughs> wildland interface. Yes. The wooey. There's so many yeah. acronyms. Like, 
there's just so many. Um, all right. Well, this is Byline Mendocino. I'm Alicia Bales. This is our local media roundtable for this Friday, September 2nd. And my guests are Colin Adagi of the Santa Rosa Press Democrat and Kate Fishman of the Mendocino Voice. So let's, Kate, let's turn to you. Um, thanks for joining us. What are the stories on the top of your docket this week? Yeah, so it's it's been a very um, kind of varied week in terms of the, the different environment and climate stories here. One of the biggest and one that has been a huge story in this area for a while and I think will continue to be um, was the resuming work on timber harvest plans in Jackson Forest. So CAL FIRE announced shortly after announcing a tribal co-management vision for the forest, which would be a, a really big change um, from from previous forest management, they announced that they're also planning to resume work on timber harvest plans logging in the forest, which had previously been halted for about eight months, I believe. And understandably, activists have been responding to that. Um, there's been a lot of activism in the community around this issue for a long time. Um, so Poma Land Back and the Coalition to Save Jackson Demonstration Forest have been holding rallies throughout the week, uh, Sunday, Monday, and Tuesday, including in Sacramento. And so I've done a few stories on that, and I'm sure there will be lots more, but but that's been a big one these past couple weeks. Right, and, and I think I got an email last night announcing a rally today in that. Oh, wow. in that um, let me see if I can find it. <laughs> I will see if I can find it. Uh, but yes, oh, here it is. So there is a rally today, Friday the 2nd at 1 o'clock at Camp 1 in Fort Bragg, which is 5.84 miles east from Fort Bragg on Highway 20. So yeah, and then they so there's another rally on Monday, the 5th at 4 p.m. in Willits at Babcock Park. So yeah, they have really been responding uh, loudly and very actively to the resumption of logging in Jackson Demonstration State Forest. Do you go to those protests? Yeah, I went to all but the one in Sacramento this week. So on Sunday, there was one in Casper um, that was also a quilt raffle and honestly, a, a very beautiful day with lots of music and um, lots of people sharing their attachment to the forest and um, yeah, it was a, a lovely afternoon. And then uh, on Monday in Fort Bragg, uh, people marched from City Hall to the Cal Fire office there. And I was able to be there and, and take some photos and hear people's speeches. And yeah, it's it's been a lot to cover. And that's good to know about uh, Camp One today. Maybe I'll have to get over there. Right. Head on over to Camp One uh, and cover that one. So, and then what other stories are you looking at for the environment and climate in Mendocino County? I mean, there's one big one, which we're all going to experience together this weekend. Yeah. So, of course, uh, this upcoming Labor Day weekend, the governor has now proclaimed a state of emergency statewide in California for a pretty big heat wave that is set to hit. Um, Sacramento, it seems, will will bear the brunt of that in our, our region, but um, Ukiah and Redwood Valley and general inland areas in Mendocino County, it seems, could be hit pretty hard, including um, a possible record-setting heat in some areas of Ukiah. We'll have to see um, the National Weather Service in Eureka has been 
um, kind of weighing the, the different possibilities in terms of whether it could be the low end or the high end of the heat wave. But one thing that really struck me from Newsom's proclamation was his emphasis on the need to end our dependence on fossil fuels toward energy as these are destroying our climate and making these heat waves hotter, more common, and then um, leading to power outages and things that, uh, you know, direct energy impacts. Um, and so the two are are really correlated in this kind of um, horrific loop that, that we're experiencing throughout the summer really and and seem likely to experience this weekend i thought uh, i thought it was interesting in your reporting talking about the different sort of mitigations the different ways they're going to try to lower the impact on the the energy that people are using on the electricity use like unplugging boats in harbors <laughs> from you know like i was thinking how much energy do they use when they're plugged in at harbors? It must be a lot if that's one way that they can reduce the overall electrical footprint. I know. Yeah, that that was also um, a first for me hearing hearing about that particular response. Um, yeah, something I also have, have found interesting and wanted to look in more um, is that I believe, and this could have changed in in the past 24 hours, but that the county isn't planning to open any cooling stations at this point. So places where people can go um, and be in the air conditioning during the hottest hottest hours of the day, um, particularly for houseless people, of course, that's a great resource for people who just might not have AC. Um, and given the, the heights these temperatures could get to, it's surprising to me that it doesn't qualify for cooling stations to be open. And so something I at least want to look to in the future is figuring out in our county and then in California generally um, what the, the protocol is for that, how much that's dependent on things like staffing. Um, I don't know. <laughs> this is speculation, but I'm I'm curious to, to see what um, what factors lead to the decision to open cooling stations or not, because it does seem like a really vital thing in heat waves like this. Yeah, right. When you have access to air conditioning and, you know, a refrigerator that makes ice, you can get through this, these things yeah. uh, with your sanity somewhat intact. But if you don't have access to cool, to cool space or cold water, uh, that changes the, the picture completely for people, it, whether or not you unplug the boats. <laughs> from the power sources and the power stays on if you can't get inside that's um that's a that's a, that's a good point um i'd like you both if you would to comment about we were talking about maybe we're not a news desert here in mendocino county but we're definitely arid in terms of our news there's not a lot of news coverage especially when we compare it to the, the good old days and, and how when the press Democrat had a had a um, an office here in Mendocino County and uh, there was a lot of coverage of issues going on. Can you just talk about what it's like to work in this kind of an environment? You talk about both of you are are are, are pretty new. It seems like there's a lot of turnover in local media. There's programs like Report for America, Kate, that you're a part of that are trying to um, raise the numbers of journalists working in communities like ours. I just like to hear your sort of reflections on what it's like to, to be in your role and also let listeners know how they continue to, how they can continue to cover or to, to read your coverage and, and, and find it. Colin, let's start with you. Um, so again, uh, you know, to find our coverage, you know, our paper's website is pressdemocrat.com. Uh, my Twitter, I'm at Colin underscore, uh, uh, 
at Colin underscore Atagi. Um, but yeah, um, you know, it for us, you know, we're kind of in an area um, to address, you know, what you're talking about, the, you know, how there aren't that many options for news coverage. Um, for the North Bay, I feel like there are a lot of people who do still turn to the San Francisco Chronicle, to all the TV stations down there, which are about 45 minutes from us, I guess. Um, and so we're in this, I feel like we're in this weird area where we've got competition, but we don't have competition where we have a, we have people who will still read the Chronicle, but there are other people who will turn to us for more local stuff. Um, and we will find uh, stories that the Chronicle won't cover uh, that are a big deal. Um, a lot of the ones I talked to you about earlier, um, they either other outlets either didn't cover it or they covered it only to an extent. So I, I feel like we're really kind of in this limbo area, if you will, um, where, um, you know, there could be room for more outlets, but, you know, we have some that the ones we do have, they're trying, you know, and they care. That's so that, that's definitely true. Yeah, and the impact that you're having on lo local stories in Santa Rosa, like the story of the police killing that was on the front page this morning, where where you've really pushed to get those uh, police body cam footage released in its entirety. I mean that their local news plays a material role in in government accountability. So to have places where you just don't have it, it it's a big deal to to keeping. Um, the police and the local government, you know, transparent and responsive. So definitely there's an impact there. Kate, what about you? What's it like being in Mendocino County covering um, environment and climate stories with Report for America? Yeah, I mean, I feel um, very, very fortunate and a lot of responsibility to have a pretty specific beat here that also is um, is very important <laughs> everywhere, but in, in this area especially. Um, covering climate and environment, there there is just so much to look into, and I think um, kind of going off of what Colin said, I feel when news deserts, quote unquote, are cropping up, a lot of that is not necessarily that um, papers have died or ended completely, but is more based on how well resourced they are or not, and so. I think sometimes that directly impacts just the depth of coverage, the depth of accountability that can happen in a community. And um, I think I feel very happy to be at a paper where we are trying to really balance the amount of breaking news stories and, and being as thorough and accurate with that as possible, as well as being able to go a little bit more in depth. And I think for, for a small newsroom, um, that can be rare. And I, I really appreciate um, being able to do that, but also wish, wish that there could be more of that. And I think KZYX and the Press Democrat are, are great resources in this community also. And then if you want to read um, Mendocino Voice Stories, which I hope you will, they are at mendovoice.com. And we're also on Instagram, Twitter, the Mendocino Voice, and tend to share a lot of our coverage those ways as well. And Facebook, of course. Um, and, and Mendocino Voice, of course, is also um, supported by its readers. 
so people can become subscribers that way and get access to special features and uh, email alerts and things like that. Also, I want to give a real hats off to the Mendocino Voice for the, your fire coverage. Uh, we had a fire last night uh, in Willits, and Mendocino Voice is right there uh, helping the community understand what's going on and keep themselves safe and follow the evacuation uh, information. So thanks so much. And thanks, Kate Fishman from the Mendocino Voice, Colin Atagi from the Santa Rosa Press Democrat. Thanks for being on Byline. Thanks for being part of the roundtable this morning. Sure. Thanks for having us. All right. I hope to talk to you again soon. So when we come back, we will be talking with Mendocino Voice publisher Kate Maxwell and David Loy, of the, the legal director of for the First Amendment Coalition, about transparency in local access to public records. Stay tuned. Hello, I am Alicia Bales. You are tuned to Byline Mendocino here on KZYX. Byline Mendocino is a bi-weekly look at the local news and local newsmakers. And we um, we are going to be focusing in this second half of the hour on a local ordinance passed by the Mendocino County Board of Supervisors, um, ostensibly to cover their the rising costs of um, labor to address Public Records Act requests, but um, it seems to be uh, have raised a lot of ire in the community in terms of charging too much for Public Records Act from um, from people requesting documents from the local government. Uh, David Loy, the legal director for the First Amendment Coalition, and Kate Maxwell, the publisher of the Mendocino Voice, are here to talk about what is going on and their response. They've both written uh, letters uh, in opposition to what the county is up to, particularly trying to um, cover the costs for local media, but not for citizens, uh, and and kind of trying to split split the costs here or split the way that the county works on it. I am not making it clear, but my guests will. So I want to welcome you, Kate and David. Thank you so much for being here. And um, can we start with you, Kate, just kind of explain what is going on and um, why you and the First Amendment Coalition have responded so strongly in opposition to what the county's doing? Sure. Um, I'll try and give sort of the summary of what's been going on. And thanks so much for having us here, Alicia, to talk more about this issue. Um, So, you know, this all started in June of this year and when the county council proposed a new ordinance that would you know, very significantly raise the fees of public records requests here in Mendocino County. And they created a fee structure which is supposed to be by the hour and 
that can go up to $150 an hour, depending on how much time an individual person has already used up of county staff. So um, part of what is confusing about this new fee structure is it's not exactly clear how it's supposed to be implemented. It just went into effect um, mid-August. And so it was unanimously approved by the supervisors to charge these new fees. Um, and that means that if someone is filing a number of requests, they are only going to be allocated up to a certain amount of staff time each month. And then they might get charged these fees, at which point they would be asked to come in and put down a deposit of what could be $150 an hour, how it's actually supposed to go down is still kind of unclear. Um, but, you know, as a local news organization that files a lot of public records requests, both for our staff reporters and with freelancers and often is shared material that comes from these requests or told to file these requests by county staff when we ask questions, um, it kind of took us by surprise and we're really concerned, you know, not just about what this means for how we report and do our jobs, but what it means for all the people in Mendocino County that, you know, rely on this mechanism as the way that they get information about what their local government is doing. Um, and now we're going to have to navigate this very confusing and unclear and very expensive new fee structure that, um, from what we can tell based on talking to the FAC, who's been really helpful through this process and just letting us figure out what the options are, um, that, you know, there should, this is not something that from our understanding complies with the California public records requests. And that is sort of the statewide law that ensures this right for all people to be able to make these requests and just get basic information um, about public records and what their local government is doing. All right. So you mentioned the FAC. That's the First Amendment Coalition. We have their legal director on the line, David Loy. David, you're from a statewide organization. You look at these issues of transparency and access throughout the state. And this particular ordinance in Mendocino County has caught your organization's eye. Can you talk about what's going on and why the First Amendment Coalition feels like they need to get involved here? Absolutely. And like Kate, thank you very much for having me on the show and giving me the chance to chat and share this information. Yes, we at FAC have been tracking similar ordinances around the state. We know of about six or seven others, and we're doing a statewide survey. They're kind of proliferating around the state uh, because uh, county governments uh, are, I think, uh, applying a misguided understanding of the law to justify their assertion that they can charge, you know, 20, 50, up to $150 an hour to search for, look at, and then redact public records. Um, the Mendocino ordinance caught our eye for a couple of reasons. One, it, it's the most recent that we're aware of. And two, as far as we know, it has the highest maximum hourly rate of up to $150 an hour 
uh, of any time expended by a county attorney to review and potentially redact public records. Um, if I could step back for a second, um, you know, we've talked about the California Public Records Act and, and Kate explained, I think, very, very thoroughly the impact that these kind of financial barriers have on uh, local media, media of any kind, public records requesters. But, you know, just so we're clear, I mean, the California Public Records Act is a cornerstone of government accountability and transparency in the state. You know, it is modeled on federal freedom of information laws, and these laws all date back to the late 60s and early 70s, when there's a real revolution in the idea of government accountability and transparency and, and a repudiation of the idea that government is entitled to uh, govern in secret. And that's why we have things like the Public Records Act and the Brown Act. And this is actually baked into the California Constitution. As of 2004, California voters approved Proposition 59, which baked this right into the state constitution. But, you know, um, the problem is if you have to pay $20 an hour to look for public records, $50 an hour, $150 an hour for uh, agency counsel to review them, the, the costs of these requests suddenly become, can potentially become astronomical and prohibitive. Um, part of the problem in asking for public records is if I'm, you know, let's say I'm a reporter or I'm an activist, I'm just a community member and I'm interested in a particular issue and I want to know what is the county or the city doing about this this land use project or this grant program or, or this agency or, you know, I have the right to ask for records and, you know, unless those records are exempt from disclosure, I'm entitled to full transparency. Um, the problem is, like, I don't know from the outside looking in what records they have. I can talk about the kind of records I want, describe them by type or category, but because I don't, I can't rummage through their file system. I don't know what their files are. By necessity, I have to ask for records by category or type. And that requires the agency in turn to look for those records, make a reasonable search, and try to produce records that fall within you know, my description. And that does take time, and I, I acknowledge that. But the way the California Public Records Act is structured, it allocates certain costs to the government, certain costs to the requesters. And under the Public Records Act in California, the only cost that a requester can be forced to bear is direct cost of duplication for copies of actual records. Um, you know, there's a separate provision. If there's a specialized statute on point for DMV or somebody else, that's different. But generally speaking, um, you know, they can charge me what it costs to make the copies, but they cannot charge me for the time it takes to look for the records, you know, review them to decide which parts are, are subject to disclosure, which parts are exempt, maybe redact uh, the portions that are exempt, and then produce the records. But isn't That's that just, exactly what this ordinance does? That is exactly what this ordinance does. And that's exactly why we think it is unlawful and violates the Public Records Act. The county is pointing to, I suspect, uh, another provision of the government code, um, uh, 54985 to be precise, which is a general statute that allows counties to increase certain fees that are otherwise authorized by law. It's kind of a, it's a descendant or an, uh, a consequence of Prop 13. Counties lost the ability to raise taxes. They came to depend more on user fees. And so this statute allows them to adjust costs for fees that are already authorized by the legislature. So they don't have to go back to the state house every time they need to go to like from 10 cents a page to 15 cents a page. They can adjust for inflation and cost of living over time. But the key in that statute is that the fee must be otherwise authorized by law. 
Uh, our position is the CPRA, the Public Records Act, does not itself authorize fees to look for, review, and redact public records. It only authorizes the fees to make you know, cost of making the actual copies. Uh, and so our position is that the county cannot bootstrap and manufacture a fee that is not otherwise already baked into the Public Records Act. Sorry there for going on a bit. It's a bit technical, but I think I wanted to share some background there. Absolutely. Well, there's this other aspect of this, too, where the county doesn't seem to agree with you right now. They seem to think that this ordinance is appropriate and they're moving forward with it. Although, as Kate says, we don't really know how it's going to work, but, you know, it's on the books. But when these concerns were raised, their response was to say, okay, well, we'll make a media exemption of some sort, maybe a grant program to pay the fees for media, which you, uh, both Kate and David, you both think is not a good idea. Uh, do you want to talk about that, that sort of workaround to the problems with this ordinance in terms of trying to make sure that media doesn't have to pay these fees, but everybody else does? Yeah, go ahead, Kate. <laughs> Thanks. You know, um, one of the things that happened during this process is when you propose a new ordinance, um, which, to be honest, certainly took me by surprise because uh, I hadn't been aware this was an issue for the county. Uh, but it was first proposed in June, and then there's sort of a 30-day first draft, second draft window um, before the ordinance is actually finally approved and so people have an opportunity to give public comment and the majority of the people that gave public comment on this issue were local media um, because it's something that we deal with a lot um, and so in response to some of those public comments the supervisors went ahead and said okay we're hearing from local media about their concerns um, you know i i gave public comment myself and was trying to speak for my own situation, which is, you know, a starter founder of a local online news outlet. Um, so we are a commercial entity, but we have fiscal sponsorship. You know, we're a particular kind of media organization. We have a small staff and a small budget. So I was sort of sharing my concerns with the supervisors about what that looks like for media. Um, in response to comments from also Sarah Reith at KZYX um, and other local media reporters, the supervisor said, you know, as a gesture towards preserving government transparency, we'll go ahead and create some kind of media fund. Um, I think the concern that I have, you know, first of all, is that the real heart of this issue is about public access to government records. And so, um, you know, whether or not I could get some kind of grant funding to cover the activity of my staff, that's not really, um, the foundation of the public access and what's important about these transparency regulations from my perspective, you know, it's not enough to have the existing local media, whoever gets to qualify for that, um, be able to have their funds covered. What's really important to ensure public access is making sure that every anyone in the public can have this same right. Um, but what's also confusing is, you know, the express goal of 
this ordinance originally was to reduce the amount of staff time uh, spent on public records or to be able to recoup some costs around that. That's at least from my understanding what county council said in meetings and to me directly. Um, and creating this media fund when we don't even know quite how the ordinance is going to get implemented, we now have this mysterious media fund um, that still needs to be discussed, and that's coming up in mid-September. And that would need to define who gets to be media, what kind of forms they need to fill out, um, you know, when we get the reimbursement, how does that all get, how does that happen? When do the forms get reconciled at the end of the year? How do you do your deposits? What about freelancers? A million more questions that's only going to take more time and money for all of us. And so, um, you know, we had been talking to the First Amendment Coalition, just looking at the legal standpoint to begin with. But over the last several weeks, we started reaching out to, you know, other local media in the area that would potentially be eligible for this grant fund, but also other local press advocates. And, you know, it's not just Mendocino County Media, it's outlets like the Press Democrat, it's the Columbia Journalism School and the Center for Public Integrity, who are based in D.C., that file records requests here in Mendocino County. Um, we have independent journalists. We have residents who just really care about particular issues and advocacy groups. So um, the media fund, while I think was a nice gesture, uh, really seems to elide the real point that we are concerned about here. And that's why um, we de decided to write a letter along with FAC and sort of that letter includes signatures from different media outlets both across the region and sort of bigger groups like the EFF or the Pacific uh, Guild Media Fund that sort of represent broader uh, concerns about public access and transparency. I think what's so interesting is that, yes, uh, here uh, we have, you know, a, a small county with a small local government, and yet far and wide people are noticing what is happening here with this ordinance and the effect on transparency. And so you have, um, with leadership from the Mendocino Voice, KZYX, and other uh, local journalists, um, you have larger statewide groups coming in here to, to take a stand against this ordinance. It's very, very interesting. David, I think one of the questions raised by what Kate just talked about was like, what is media and who defines that? In your letter to the Board of Supervisors, you made a, a, a pretty clear argument about uh, what is media. Do you want to talk about that and the, the sort of the the knot that needs to be untied or the challenges in defining in a in a in a society like the united states where we um have enshrined first amendment freedoms in our in our constitution who gets to decide who is media absolutely let me back up for a second and just echo what kate said as a as a prelude which is you know no one's a bigger cheerleader for media and especially local media, especially in news deserts than I am and, and, and First Amendment Coalition generally. And so, you know, none of this is to say that media shouldn't be uh, supported wherever uh, possible. Uh, but as Kate said, the Public Records Act is not the Media Records Act, it's the Public Records Act. And the barriers, the financial barriers imposed by the ordinance are um, significant and substantial and will deter everyone from making record requests, media and otherwise. And, and to carve out a media waiver or media exemption or media grant fund does not save 
the the, or, the ordinance uh, at its threshold because it's just it's our position is unlawful as a, as a whole. That being said, we did send a letter to the to county council explaining you know we are, we do think the ordinance is unlawful, but in the interest of harm reduction in the meantime, if you're going to create this kind of media waiver or media grant fund, um, your definition of media must comply with the First Amendment. And the First Amendment uh, does not allow the government to discriminate between different types of media, between uh, institutional media and freelancers, between traditional brick and mortar and online, between print and online, between print, radio, uh, digital, what have you. Uh, the First Amendment requires the broadest possible definition of media and does not allow any form of discrimination between different parts of the media. One of the things that the board's resolution said is they wanted to support local media and, 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 well, you know, that's, that's a nice thought and certainly local media is wonderful. However, the First Amendment does not allow the government to discriminate between local and non-local media. And I know, I'm not even sure what local means in a, in a digital remote world anymore, <laughs> but put that to one side. As, as Kate said, you know, you have, um, out of town organizations with very legitimate, uh, news gathering uh, enterprises making records request to Mendocino County or Humboldt County or San, you know, city and county of San Francisco, right? We, none of us live in a vacuum. None, none of us live in an island. And, and the government is not allowed to give a preference to one segment of media over another, regardless of the criteria, be it circulation, be it locality, be it medium of publication. So um, that's that was the focus of our letter, which is to say if you're going to do this media program, which you know we think you shouldn't do the ordinance at all, and we'll take that up separately, but if you're going to do this media grant fund, you have to open it to all media of any kind. And one of the justifications for the ordinance that I heard was that there are people in the community who are abusing the Public Records Act in some way or another, whether or not they're businesses doing market research or people who are just filing harassing Public Records Act requests, you know, multiple times a day. Can you speak to the abuse of the Public Records Act and how um, a county or how a government like Mendocino you know, county can deal with that if that's even a thing, David. I'll, sure, I'll, I will take issue with the premise that there's such a thing as abuse of the Public Records Act at the outset because the PRA, by definition, gives every member of the public the exact same right to access public records, and the Public Records Act itself prohibits the government from uh, discriminating based on the purpose of a request. Every member of the public stands on exactly the same ground and has an equal right to submit a PRA request, regardless of whatever my purpose, be it commercial gain or otherwise. And, you know, the, the, the case law is very clear. What's, what's relevant is the public's interest in disclosing public records, not the private purpose of the requester. Um, so whether I'm a reporter or I'm a business or I'm a business, you know, I'm a, I'm a business owner or I'm a, uh, a data harvester or a, a data, a, you know, a data company or I'm a developer or I'm, uh, you know, a community group opposing a development that the beauty of the PRA is we all have equal rights and equal access to public records. Um, now, that being said, there are provisions in the PRA which enable an agency to manage um, its public records burden. One is there is what's called a catch-all exemption um, in the PRA, which allows an agency to deny a request if the burden of compliance is, is a truly excessive. 
if I've requested every email that everyone in the county has ever sent in the last 10 years. That's clearly unduly burdensome, and, and there's case law which says that the agency can simply deny a request. You know, that it's just, it's, it's unbelievably excessive. There is a provision in the PRA that uh, allows, in fact, mandates agencies to negotiate with or cooperate with requesters to try to help them frame and narrow the request if somebody's, somebody's inadvertently asked for more than they really need because they don't know what records the county has. And so there are ways and means to, to address that. There are also ways and means to, if there are re records that are frequently requested, um, uh, the county can post them online and then point the requesters to those records. A number of uh, lo local agencies have already done that around the state for law enforcement records, for example, that became uh, subject to disclosure with uh, the passage of SB 1421 a couple of years ago, these law enforcement misconduct records. You know, there was huge public interest, and so agencies, I think some quite properly, just put them online and say, here, free for the taking for everybody to minimize the burden of having to you know, reinvent that wheel every time a request comes in. So there's ways and means to address these issues. Um, but at the end of the day, it is the first duty of democratic government to be open and accountable to the people. It is a necessary cost of doing business under the Public Records Act. It is a constitutional right and a constitutional duty of local government to be open, transparent, and accountable. And if they don't like those burdens, they should take that up with the uh, state legislature because that is the law of the state and, and, and it is baked into the state constitution. All right, this is Byline Mendocino. I'm Alicia Bales. We're talking with David Loy, the legal director for the First Amendment Coalition, and Kate Maxwell, the publisher of the Mendocino Voice newspaper, about Mendocino County's uh, Public Records Act request ordinance to charge requesters uh, for their time up to $150 an hour and the effect of that ordinance on uh, transparency and government accountability in Mendocino County. Um, Kate, I wonder about the Mendocino Voice as an example about how you use the Public Records Act and what the consequences would be to your coverage or to our county uh, for the la if you couldn't use that. Uh, if it became prohibitively expensive for you, um, you know, and, and if you're thinking about what that might mean for Mendocino Voice. Thanks, Alicia. Yeah, you know, I think we've run into a lot of these different kinds of scenarios that David has described in the past. So um, we have looked at the public records requests that have been filed and we have requested other people's requests because they made an interesting uh, had an interesting question that could provide context for our ongoing reporting um i have personally gone into county offices and said hey i'd really like to get the information say about this environmental health complaint and had staff members say oh, you have to make a public records request for that. Or I said, you might want to look into this thing by making a public records request. Um, so it's something that, you know, or we've had community members say, I made this public re records request and found this, and I really think you guys should be looking into it further. Um, Do you I have a, a, a specific example of a story where a public records request um, helped you in, in the coverage that you were doing locally? Oh, yeah, totally. I think, you know, if anything, it's such a regular part of our reporting that it's actually really hard to quantify. Um, so, you know, we've been doing a lot of coverage, like Colin mentioned, the stories that Colin mentioned about police accountability. Um, you know, one of the most 
frequent requests that happens in Mendocino County is about uh, pesticide usage. And so people are constantly requesting what are the, is there pesticide uh, applications happening near me or what companies are doing that? Um, and you can go look at the requests and, you know, that's something that comes up in Kate's Fishman's reporting. Um, so it really kind of touches on every aspect of local news, more just depending on how much time we have to make those requests and then how much time it gets to um, have them come back. So I personally made a request in this spring around the outgoing CEO um, and some of her correspondence, say, with um, cannabis issues. And so I put in a request about emails for the outgoing CEO with some specific search terms. And I have now been working with county council's office for months, um, trying to narrow down those searches. They discovered some things about how their email searches work that they were unaware of. Um, so, you know, I still actually haven't gotten those requests back. And in one conversation recently, I asked county council, you know, what would this look like if I had made this request with a new ordinance in place? How would this go down? Would I be putting deposits down? How would I even guess what kind of money I would need to get these email requests back and he did not unfortunately have a good answer for me so you know from a budgeting perspective or it or a time management perspective it's a pretty impossible to gauge the the scope of what this will mean but it's very worrisome because we are a small outlet with not a lot of resources to spare for this. Um, we believe it's so important that prior to this ordinance, we were sort of developing a training program for local residents and actually talking to FAC. You know, we've been in touch with them about how do we narrow these responses? We regularly reach out to them just in the course of reporting. How do we make this better, uh, better phrased for county staff so we're not wasting time? Um, but one of the things we had been looking into was training Mendocino County residents about how they can more effectively file this, re these requests because it is just such an essential part of our work. Um, and we essential part of local government trans, uh, accountability. And so now we're sort of looking at, you know, is the best course forward to just come up with a Mendocino County specific public records training program, which is kind of crazy to have to do. Um, but, you know, that might be the most efficient way forward for us as a local news organization is just to have as many people as possible know how to file these requests so that if we run out of our budget or staff time under this new ordinance, you know, we might have to turn to other people and say, could you file this request? Because this is actually the way we can work with this new ordinance. Um, Suddenly, so we're, we're going to have a lot more local journalism. I mean, a whole lot be, more local reporters. We figured out how I to do it. That would be, <laughs> you know, great for me. I'm not sure if that's uh, what the supervisors were hoping for in passing this ordinance, but, you know, we're really looking at all possible options um, and talking to the FAC about, you know, whether or not we have other legal recourse to push back. All right. So, David, Loy, I'm going to give you the last word. We've got about two minutes left. Um, what comes next? Where are we with the with this ordinance and, and what comes next? Well, we are looking very closely at this ordinance and similar ordinances around the state because these are systemic and structural barriers. You know, the, the uh, charging uh, uh, a, a disproportionate fee or charging an unattainable fee is tantamount to denying access to public records. It's chilling the right of people to seek public records in the first place. Um, and 
So this is a top priority uh, because it's a statewide problem and it attacks the very foundations of accountability and transparency. So I, I, you know, I can't say specifically, you know, what's next tomorrow or the next day, but but yes, this is a top priority for us, and we are very concerned about this ordinance and its and its counterparts around the state. Do you see these kinds of things proliferating around the state? As uh, if Mendocino County can quote unquote get away with this would other counties look to this as an example do you think it's quite possible and i i know that it does appear i can't read their minds but reading between the lines it does appear that the mendocino ordinance is in turn modeled on similar ordinances in other counties and other counties may in turn look to mendocino and the counterpart ordinances to model their ordinances um you know, as i said we're we know of at least half a dozen of these around the state. There may be more. We are currently canvassing to, you know, quantify that. Uh, but it is a serious concern because what's, what is unique is that as far as I know, Mendocino uh, uh, created the highest maximum hourly rate of $150 an hour uh, for attorneys to review and redact records, unless a paralegal can do it, in which case it's $50 an hour. But that's in the discretion of, you know, the department head and county council. So part of the problem here is the is the you know it may deter people from making requests in the first place. Uh, once people get the fee estimate and being required to submit an advance deposit, they may be they may abandon their record requests. And at the end of the day, what happens is less transparency, more secrecy, which is bad for democracy. All right. Well, thank you for that. On that note, we are going to uh, end Byline Mendocino this morning. But thank you both, David Loy, the legal director for the First Amendment Coalition, and Kate Maxwell, the publisher of the Mendocino Voice. Thanks so much. And thanks to you for listening this morning. I am Alicia Bales, host of Byline Mendocino and also program director here at KZYXNZ. I want to thank you very much for tuning in. Have a great weekend, y'all. Stay cool. If you enjoyed this podcast, you can go to kzyx.org to find more shows and content like this one. While there, you can stream us live or check out our jukebox. And if you like what you hear, consider donating by clicking the red donate button in the upper right corner. We are Mendocino County Public Broadcasting, listener-supported community radio. KZYX, Philo, 90.7 FM. KZYZ, Woolets and Ukiah, 91.5 FM. And Fort Bragg at 88.1 FM. Thanks for listening.